designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tails behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. Public health has also been a handmaiden (laughs) of many of the issues that we're dealing with. So that's the scrutiny that I think we have to undergo. It's not just police. It's not just the sort of fast violence that we see. It's also the slow professional violence that many of our fields, urban planning, architecture, public health, our fields have played a role in this. So our obligation then is to examine those roles that we played and then help to heal and restore the neighborhoods from our professions as well. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here. So let's get into it. Welcome back. This year is flying by and it's almost conference season. I am super excited for conference season this year because it's the first time I'll be speaking at three national conferences about a combination of race, sustainability, and gender. I'll put links to the various conferences I'm about to mention in the show notes, so be sure to check those out. So I'm excited to be speaking at the National Organization of Minority Architects, NOMA, conference in Nashville, at Greenbuild in San Francisco, and at the National Trust for Historic Preservation's Past Forward virtual conference. If you'll be at any of those, be sure to say hi and let me know you're a listener. I know that conferences can be expensive and time-consuming, but they are also one of the few places where you're able to connect with professionals who are doing the work you're interested in. Many conferences also offer sponsorships, discounts, and scholarships to attend, so be sure to do a little bit of research if needed. A big reason I go to conferences is to make those professional connections, and I can't tell you the number of times that I've fangirled over someone who's a rock star in my mind, and I got to meet them at a conference. And actually, the most recent one happened at the AIA conference in Chicago this past June, when I ran into Bob Berkebile of BNIM. 
He's one of the OG architects who was instrumental in the formation of the U.S. Green Building Council and the creation of the LEED rating system. I think I kept it together on the outside, but the excitement was real. Anyways, conferences are amazing, and I highly recommend them if you're able to attend. I am also super grateful that the company that I work for, Quinn Evans, is financially supportive of employees attending and speaking at conferences. So this week's Building Spotlight is actually on the Turner Station neighborhood in Baltimore, which is where Henrietta Lacks lived before she died. For those of you who don't know, Henrietta Lacks died of an aggressive cervical cancer at Johns Hopkins University in 1951. One of the doctors took a sample of her cells that were retrieved during a biopsy. And while most cells that the doctors took from other patients would quickly die, Henrietta's cells continued to double every 20 to 24 hours. These cells have been nicknamed HeLa cells and are considered immortal since the cells multiply on their own outside of their original host. And the cells are still doubling to this day and have been used to study a number of viruses and even played a crucial role in the development of the COVID-19 vaccine. And though the HeLa cells have contributed to many biomedical research advancements, their usage in research has been controversial for many reasons, but one of the primary ones being that Henrietta Lacks was a Black woman who did not knowingly donate her cells to science. Turner Station, where she lived, is located in the southeastern corner of Baltimore County, and it's where many African-American workers at Bethlehem Still and other nearby factories lived with their families from the 1800s up through the present. And while Bethlehem still built housing for their white workers in Dundalk after World War I, they made no investments in housing for black workers in Turner Station. Instead, residents had to build their own homes and businesses, and they grew the community outside of the oversight of company officials. Turner Station soon became one of the largest African-American communities in Baltimore County, and the town reached a peak around World War II when wartime workers at Bethlehem still started moving into the area. And according to local historian Louis Diggs, credit for the self-sufficient community's development belongs largely to Mr. Anthony Thomas and his son, Dr. Joseph Thomas. Baltimore Heritage did a really great five-minute history on the connection between Turner Station and Henrietta Lacks, so I'll be sure to put that link in the show notes as well. And the connection between housing and health is something that you'll hear discussed a little bit more during this week's episode. I'm super excited to share a conversation I had earlier this year with Dr. Lawrence T. Brown. And you may remember me mentioning him in a previous episode where I did a quick review on his book, The Black Butterfly, The Harmful Politics of Race and Space in America, which was published by the Johns Hopkins University Press in January 2021. I am so grateful to have been able to talk to him and dig into more of the topics that were covered in his book. And just a little bit of background on Dr. Lawrence T. Brown. He is an equity scientist, an urban Afrofuturist, and the director of the Black Butterfly Academy, which is a virtual racial equity education and consulting firm. From 2013 to 2019, he served as an assistant and associate professor at Morgan State University in the School of Community Health and Policy. And in June 2018, he was honored by OSI Baltimore with the Bold Thinker Award for sparking critical discourse regarding Baltimore's racial segregation. This conversation was really enlightening for me, and I may have fangirled just a little bit, but it was a great conversation. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation between me and Dr. Lawrence T. Brown. 
I am so grateful for you taking time. So tell me a little bit about your journey into public health and what got you into equity. Well, I think probably my journey into public health is the story of my education, working my way through collegiate education. So I, at Morehouse, I started out my collegiate journey in 1997 in African-American studies because I was just very interested in understanding what factors went into making the black community what it is and which is in the, all of its multiple forms. I was just very intrigued by that. So that was my major. And then from there, I went to the University of Houston and obtained a master's in public administration because I was interested in the government side of policies and how cities in particular played a role in interacting with black neighborhoods. And from there, I went to the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis because I was particularly interested in my degree field, health outcomes and policy research. So again, the policy aspect was there, but also really trying to understand health outcomes as a function of government policies and different sort of neighborhood conditions in black communities. So all of that added up really led me into public health. And really my dissertation was around you know, how neighborhoods, culture, and history produce health disparities. So that is a natural bridge to equity after understanding all the factors that produce health disparities. Of course, there's also this interest in what do we need to do to make health outcomes equal, which means you need equity to make that happen. Interesting. And so then in terms of studying the different health outcomes, and forgive me, this is a basic question. Are there, were it more so surveys? Was it more so looking at the outcomes of what types of diseases people were getting or how are outcomes being measured and studied? I'm just, I'm fascinated by this whole field. Really, a lot of it was either like maybe hospitalization data or perhaps surveys in the sense that the, I know there was one called BRFIS, the Behavioral Risk Factor Social Survey. The National Center for Health Statistics would administer an annual survey. So you have various like population health surveys. You had hospitalization data, maybe clinic data, Medicare, Medicaid data. So all of those type of uh, sources could be used to help, of course, mortality data to help understand folks that may be dying earlier or, or bear a disproportionate burden of disease depending on the cause of death. Yeah, a variety of data sources were used to really examine this notion of health outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so then in terms of the, the building side of it, because I know that one of the things that you've been fantastic and advocating for and raising awareness on is the exposure to lead and lead toxicity. Um, and what was the through line that got you to the impacts of lead in the built environment on public health? Well, I had a colleague at Morgan State her name was Andrea Kitt Taylor, and she was an environmental health researcher and scientist. She passed away somewhere around 2013, 2014. Unfortunately, I believe it was maybe breast cancer. And so- I'm sorry to hear that. Her, yes, her portfolio really came into um, my orbit. And a couple of years after that, Freddie Gray was killed by the Baltimore Police Department in Baltimore City. And news stories came out that he was exposed to toxic lead exposure, he and his twin sister, while they were growing up in Baltimore City. It was actually, you know, the combination of those two things that really put lead exposure 
at the top of my agenda to really try and understand what role it was playing in terms of health outcomes in Baltimore, especially the impacts on crime and violence, and really trying to understand, and even the intersection of folks with lead exposure having increased encounters with police, like Freddie Gray, or even Corinne Gaines, who was killed by Baltimore County Police in 2016. So just really understanding toxic lead exposure in a city like Baltimore became just a, a very central focus because it helps explain so many things. Yeah. And I remember when I first came across your work on toxic lead exposure, it was a mind-blowing situation because I hadn't made that connection between the potential toxins inside the buildings as opposed to just the psychological impact of being around vacant buildings and all of that. So like making that connection between toxic lead exposure and executive functioning, diminishing and brain damage and all that, and how that could lead to people being shooters was fascinating to me. Could you actually talk a little bit more about that? Because I'm realizing that some of my listeners may not actually know the connections. Well, I mean, toxic lead exposure is just so devastating. You mentioned the cognitive impacts, like how it debilitates, diminishes the executive reasoning portion of the brain, but it also has tremendous, I think, psych mental health or psychological impacts, increased levels of anxiety, increased panic attacks, increased depression, and the inability to regulate your emotions also is implicated. So you can imagine now if you're experiencing these sort of mental health and emotional impacts, how then that may explains how lead exposure is connected to crime and violence because there's more impulsivity, more aggressivity, because this heavy metal doesn't belong in the human body. It's the confluence mm -hmm. of all of these factors that makes toxic lead exposure so devastating. And yet, I would be remiss if I didn't say that many of the people with toxic lead exposure have a stigma that's often attached to them. And sometimes this, the our, our narrative, sometimes the narrative says, that they're permanently damaged, they can't be successful. And so, you know, if you succumb to that narrative as a person who's experienced toxic lead exposure, then it's, it, you may throw up your hands and say, well, why try? And that actually, it's not true that people with toxic lead exposure can't be successful. They can be successful. It's a matter of the support, the nutritional therapy, the behavioral therapy, and then also the level of the lead poisoning as well. Certainly that when it's more severe, it's going to be more debilitating than when you have lower level, even though it has an impact. So even the stigma can play a devastating role. But from a health standpoint, mm -hmm. we know that it's, it has a severe impact. And if unmitigated, if untreated, if right. constant exposure is there, then it's going to have tremendous impacts. Right. Yeah. And the, the correlation is there. And so one of the things I've been excited about as I've been learning more about your work and reading uh, your book, Black Butterfly, which is a big favorite. I've passed around our office. I'm getting more architects to read it. I, I bought your book when I was at the Baltimore Architecture Center. And then I was excited when you got to come and speak during Doors Open Baltimore, that kickoff event last year. And one of the things that I've been astounded by is how you're able to make the connections that seem so obvious, but it's, we're just not looking at them. And so a number of the connections that you make and the names that you name in the book 
I felt very salacious reading it as, oh my gosh, what happened in 1930, whatever. <laughs> so it was very exciting and fun to read it. And so I'm curious, what led you to write Black Butterfly and how that book came to be? Well, it was 2016 when the editor at Johns Hopkins University Press approached me about writing the book. I signed the contract in January 2017. I think I was just blabbering on Twitter and he saw me and I was just talking about all these systems and their impacts in Baltimore, the disparate nature of these systems, the devastating discrimination in these different systems. But at the same time, I, I, I may have lifted up a couple of solutions here and there. And so he said, you should write a book <laughs> on, you know, this very topic. Since I guess it seemed pretty obvious that I had a passion for it and I, I would have something intelligent to say. So it really came out of my activity on social media. But I had also thought about 2016. That's a year after the uprising that took place after the murder of Freddie Gray. And I was already thinking about a similar book, just in terms of trying to tie these pieces together. One of the through lines through my book is a conceptual framework called historical trauma, which was created or coined by a Native American scholar named Maria Yellow Horse Braveheart, a Lakota scholar, who trying to explain different things and impacts that affected Native Americans. And I was exposed to that in 2014. I went to a conference at Purview a&M in Texas and heard another Native American scholar named Dr. Tanil Marley, and she exposed me to a Dr. Braveheart's theory or conceptual framework. And it just blew me away because so many of the elements that I've been researching, they were all together, tied together in this one sort of master framework. And so that sort of propelled me to coalesce and bring what seemed to be like the disparate material together because it's all in this framework. So by the time the invitation to write the book came, I had sufficient content expertise that I knew I could write about. Although during the course of writing the book, I felt like I had to keep growing new brain cells because there was more to sort of master <laughs> and command before it really right. all came together. Great. Did, when you were invited to write the book, do you think that the Johns Hopkins Press knew what their involvement in the story would be? Yes. Me and the editor, we talked beforehand. I said, well, you know, I'm going to talk about EBDI and Johns Hopkins being involved in uprooting and displacing people around the university. And he was like, as long as there's evidence-based and documentation behind it, which is what a scholarly mm -hmm. academic book has to be anyway, Right. then just tell the truth and, and that's fine. So yeah, it was it was a point. I thought it was incredibly brave. I yeah. thought it was this, it was intentional. It was an editor who was willing mm -hmm. to allow this sort of confrontation and this mirror to be held up to the institution. So that's actually what kind of got me on board because I was like, eh, I don't know about writing for Johns Hopkins right. University Press. But I thought this, the internal challenge it could provide mm -hmm. was worthwhile. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was one of the things that I was struck by as I was reading it. Cause I was like, oh, do they know that he's writing this? <laughs> it was one of those things where it was the, I love the fact that it was very fact-based, very, this is what happened here, the receipts, and then also very forward-looking. So I love the book. I've reviewed it on the podcast previously. It's super dope. If you haven't read it yet, I highly recommend it. But I guess I'm curious in terms of, 
I know the book's only been out about a year or so. What are some of the changes that you're seeing as more people or institutions are reading the book as they're learning more about what happened? Are more institutions open to some of the solutions you posed and trying to do a little bit more reconciliation? Imagine earning continuing education credits while doing exactly what you're doing right now. Well, you can. Gable Media has revolutionized the way you earn your continuing education credits with a groundbreaking approach. Forget running around town and scouring the internet for credit-worthy courses. Fulfill your CE requirements effortlessly by listening to engaging podcasts just like the one you're listening to now. Our podcasts are designed to educate, entertain, and inspire, all in a user-friendly environment. But wait, there's more. Architects, Gable Media is also approved as an AIA continuing education services provider. Upon completion, we handle everything from reporting your hours directly to the AIA to storing your certificates in your personal Gable Media profile for your self-reporting needs. So follow the link in the show notes and start earning your credits in the most innovative and entertaining way possible with Gable Media. Want to learn more about the unknown ladies of architecture? Then I recommend you listen to She Builds Podcasts where we tell the stories of remarkable women who have shaped the design and construction industries. Hi, I'm Jessica. I'm Nurjiti. And I'm Lizzie. After we graduated from Syracuse University School of Architecture, we set out to learn and share the untold stories of women that traditional school curriculum left out. One day, there's an announcement on campus that women had been seen wearing, quote, inappropriate clothing. Gasp. What the heck does that mean? Yeah, so it turns out that Ruth and her fellow classmates were these women. They had field classes where they're doing welding, forging, and foundry work. And obviously they have to wear jeans to those classes instead of like dresses or whatever else. While Gertie was in school, she wasn't just going to classes, trying to stay alive like some of us. I know that was me in school, just (laughs) taking it day by day, but not Gertie. She became the president of Evigol, an honorary association of Cornell women architects. Of course she did. These are stories not taught in schools. Women who've molded the world of architecture, construction, and development for over a century. From Jane Jacobs to Ray Eames, She Builds Podcast explores the legacies of trailblazers. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform. Let's fill the gaps in history together. All you have to do is follow the link in the show notes and subscribe and be part of a movement to expand industry narratives. First of all, thank you for the generous praise for the book. Sometimes I think that the change that I wanted to see isn't happening quick enough, but I have been informed about city council members that are looking at legislation to help fund or to help authorize and create like Baltimore neighborhood reparations. One of the solutions that I put in the book, there's some discussion about whether or not a ballot initiative might be better than legislation. So that sort of lets me know there's sort of impact from the book in the legislative arena at the state level. There's a delegate who is pushing forward a commission to study reparations in the state of Maryland. So I have seen like legislators, folks in city hall are 
and on the city council reference and say, this is impacting me. This is, you know, informing my work. So I, I have been excited about that. Although I'm anxiously awaiting some tangible legislation or ballot or something that really helps it move forward. That makes sense. And I think one of the things that I've been excited about and the impact that your book is having at the design professional level is that there's more people acknowledging the history of Baltimore, more people realizing what it was or what got us to where we are and recognizing that design really is not neutral. The policy has not been neutral. And even the idea, the language is changing a little bit and how I'm hearing some people, particularly a lot of my white colleagues talking about race and concentrated poverty and not using the terms concentrated poverty because it's as you've said in other platforms concentrated poverty doesn't say who concentrated the poverty it's not just poor people decided they wanted to live together so i think it's been Mm -hmm. interesting to see how many professionals are starting to view the existing built environment differently through the lens of this is why things are the way they are And as frustrating as it is that design has gotten us to this point, it's also, there's some hope in that because if design got us here, then design can get us out of here. And we can actually be a little bit more equitable as we're moving forward. It's been interesting to see this pervade because I think one of the things that's been um, frustrating for me in a lot of my career being the token in many of the spaces that I operate in is that it's the space for, oh, you just misunderstood. You took that the wrong way. That's not what they meant. That No, you're being too sensitive. So it's like, no, like, here's the receipts. This was very intentional. Baltimore was absolutely redlined. It's not just, oh, they can't afford to be there. There is a transportation gap. So that's been fascinating and helpful. So I'm just sorry, just rambling. Sorry, just exciting. <laughs> so then no, turn, I mean, I think yeah. you raised a wonderful point, if I may. It's just yeah. the notion, in some ways, before real policy, not just policy change, but it has to be enforced and implemented. Mm -hmm. That's usually where a lot of things fall apart. But before that happens, the dominant narrative has to be supplanted. And I do think I've seen the book and even before the book, the the concept of the black butterfly help with the counter narrative that has to rise up in terms of people's mental understanding of how these problems really originated because if you go by the dominant narrative you say it's the fault of the people who live in those neighborhoods they're lazy shiftless trifling up to no good Mm -hmm. and therefore government intervention public private intervention is not needed because it's their fault but the counter narrative that i think the black butterfly with the documentation and with the evidence the visual evidence especially I think it really helps people understand that, like you said, this was all intentionally created by government enforced racial segregation and forced displacement. So it was intentionally done, which means it can be intentionally undone, but we have to really ascribe social responsibility and accountability to these large public and private entities that made it a reality. So there is, uh, I think what you're talking about is real because it's it's dealing with the narratives that sort of predominate our thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the 
one of the reframing that also happened for me in your book. So oftentimes when reparations are talked about, people get uncomfortable because, oh, it's a handout and it's like, oh, well, it's not my fault. My family didn't own slaves, whatever. There's all these, well, that's not fair kind of mm -hmm. things if all of a sudden Black people start getting reparations. But then and it's often framed as a handout to Black people. And one of the things that I loved about your book is that you actually talk about the fact that many of the Green Line communities are actually stealing from Red Line communities. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. It's really, as I say, Baltimore is a Category 5 hyper-segregated city, which is like a hurricane. Category 5 is the most intense, most devastating form of racial segregation that we have. Now, the, the way people need to understand hyper-segregation, racial segregation in general, is that it results in the hyper-allocation of resources to white neighborhoods and the hyper-deprivation of resources in black neighborhoods. So you have structural advantages that are just flowing into white neighborhoods because of green lining, because of all the connections they have, the banks, the location of banks mm -hmm. that flow into those neighborhoods. But red line black neighborhoods are structurally denied capital. Banks don't locate there and federal government policy backed it all up. They put public housing into black neighborhoods and did not put it into white neighborhoods. So this was all structurally created. And I think that's the real under sort of understanding that I like to really get at is that this hyper allocation of resources in white neighborhoods, the hyper deprivation of resources in black neighborhoods. That's the bottom line that's the real damage of racial segregation yeah absolutely and like your the definitions that you provided in the book and even talking about segronomics and the fact that there are people profiting over the fact that there are such disparate differences even thinking of the many lower income black neighborhoods there typically aren't banks but there's the payday loans there's everything where you're going to have to pay the higher interest you're going to have to pay more for being poor basically or being in areas that don't have access to resources and so just the being more mindful of that and drawing people's attention to it, I think is something that your book and your work has done beautifully. And I think it's also interesting because for whatever reason, 2020 after George Floyd was murdered, there was this awakening of many white folks who hadn't been in this conversation, who were just, oh my gosh, this is still happening. It's like, welcome to the conversation, but where have you been? So it was very mm -hmm. much a, in our firm, we were calling it the wormhole opening where it was like, many white Americans seeing into like just the everyday existence of most black people in America and that understanding the fear, understanding the, the injustice and the frustration and all that. So it was being able to have facts and stats and all the research that can prove that it's not just us black folks being emotional and being unreasonable about it has been helpful in the conversation for sure. <laughs> That's the beauty of being an academic in the environment is that I feel like our job is to come with the receipts, right? <laughs> bring the documentation, show not just institutional structural racism, but here's the actual policy practice right. system and budget that <laughs> undergirds and creates this whole monster. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so then I know um, on your educational journey, you lived in a lot of different cities and they sound like very different cities at that. Were there any elements from the work or studies that you did in any of those cities that helped to inform the work you did in Baltimore or things that you're like, oh, Baltimore really should be more like that city or vice versa? Well, that's interesting. Uh, certainly my time in Atlanta, seeing while a student at Morehouse, the public housing community across the street from our institution at the time called Harris Homes and it being in the last phase of Hope Six 
a Clinton policy that demolished about a quarter million public housing units across the country. And I think that was my introduction to how black neighborhoods are often displaced and, and black residents dispersed and not by choice and the impact of that on people, which later I would learn and come across the scholarship of Dr. Mindy Thompson fully love yes. and her book root shock, her yes. concept root shock, which really, you know, it confirmed what I knew, but it also blew me away in the power of the concept. So I think Atlanta in many ways sort of provides a, a potential future for Baltimore. It was a former chocolate city, it's become a cappuccino city, much like DC. And if the displacement continues in Baltimore, that's a possible future for Baltimore City as well. Those DC and Atlanta, I haven't lived in DC. I think there are comparisons between those two cities, just in terms of hyper gentrification, the decline in, in population and black population in those cities, and what that means for legacy existing black residents who live in red line neighborhoods. So I think that's been those cities provided the biggest examples for me, mm -hmm. but also going to school in Memphis, growing up in the Houston area, seeing what was happening in Houston. These are all cities that deal with the legacy of high racial segregation. Yeah. And so I don't think they provide, they didn't provide me much in terms of here's a model of where I think Baltimore or cities like Baltimore mm -hmm. could end up. But I think they did inform my understanding of urban policies and practices to such degree that I could understand what was happening, even though I was moving around. Yeah, that makes sense. In terms of public health outcomes, is there anything that you would love for designers, so architects, engineers, contractors, developers, whatever, to keep in mind as they are going about creating the future of the cities that we'll hopefully all be inhabiting? Well, I think all of the building community should be aware that the built environment plays a tremendous role in terms of the health of people that live there. And not just the what we build, but even like the exposure to nature and parks mm -hmm. and green space, which are often also part of the built environment, especially as parks can be designed and laid out in the landscape. And as it turns out, black neighborhoods have less green space, red line communities, the research is coming out just recently that shows that red line communities have less green space and more urban heat island effect going on. So increased temperatures during the summer, more heat strokes, more people dying. So the legacy of redlining empirically is becoming stronger and stronger in demonstrating that as you move from green communities to blue communities, to yellow communities, to red communities, you're seeing better outcomes to worse outcomes and all tied to this legacy of those four color coded communities. So obviously I think that's telling the building, the design, the construction community that if you design a green community, of course, those people are going to be healthy. Of course, right. they're going to have great outcomes. <laughs> they have all the access to all the goods and resources in the society. But if you redline a community, mm -hmm. then of course, those people are going to have worse health outcomes. Of course, they're going to live shorter lives and bear disproportionate impact in terms of health outcomes. So yes, the, the way we design and plan and zone and build our communities has a tremendous impact and it is all intentional. It's government plus private entities coming together to create those negative outcomes. The question is, 
how are we going to come together to create equity and make equity a reality? Yeah, absolutely. And like the number of solutions that you proposed in the book, particularly even like the the stay where you live voucher, as opposed to the Baltimore's that live where you work, where they're trying to get people back into the city. It's let's honor the residents who stayed and who are still here. Because there's, and particularly when it comes to gentrification and the ideas of displacement, the people who've lived in neighborhoods, particularly red line black neighborhoods for so long, they also want the neighborhoods to improve. They just want to be able to stay in their neighborhoods. They still want to be able to afford to live there. They want the buildings to be nicer. But I know that think when you mentioned Dr. Phil Love's research in her book, Root Shock, I was thinking back to the passage where it was like the, the city planners and the people who were deciding where these neighborhoods were going to go or what was going to be demolished. They didn't see communities. They just saw blight. And it's like making sure that designers are actually looking at the people and paying attention to who's there and seeing people, not just seeing dilapidated or deferred maintenance. It's going to be massively important to moving forward. Absolutely. And when you mention blight, that's a public health concept. So you have instances where actually public health helps inform racial segregation or informs forced displacement. So it's interesting. I think many of our professions played a role Mm -hmm. in all of this. So that's just as you're saying for your field, design and building and construction and architecture that people need to have this look in -hmm. their own field same thing has to happen in public health as well Mm. and so then and say more about so blight being a public health terms how does how is it used in public health well blight during urban renewal was often used as a justification for as james baldwin called it negro removal so Mm -hmm. you would have public health entities that maybe would come in and rate maybe the local public health department and say yeah this community is blighted because at that time many health departments still are involved in like code enforcement and they had like housing enforcement divisions within the public health department because of course they're helping to make sure that sanitation and you know mold and all that type of thing so they could come in and literally say this community is blighted so the definitions that were used in code enforcement often came out of public health and so that was uh, one way that public health helped inform displacement and urban renewal Oh my goodness. And then I, I always think of blight from like the architecture standpoint, but you're right, it, from health department to architecture, that's the connections there. My gosh. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, this is amazing. Absolutely. Or at the beginning, racial yeah. segregation in Baltimore, the Baltimore City Health Department is giving the mayor all these statistics about black people dying more from tuberculosis, cholera, yellow fever, mm-hmm. and then that being used as a justification for racial segregation. So public health is playing this assisting role Mm -hmm. with Mayor James Preston to help racial segregation become a reality. Public health has also been a handmaiden of many of the issues that we're dealing with. So that's the scrutiny that I think we have to undergo. It's not just police. Mm -hmm. It's not just the sort of fast violence that we see. It's also the slow professional violence that many of our fields, urban planning, architecture, public health, our fields have played a role in this. So our obligation then is to examine those roles that we played and then help to heal and restore the neighborhoods from our professions as well. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness. You know, Baltimore was ground zero for urban apartheid in America. Baltimore Mayor John Barry Mahul 
passed the first residential racial zoning law on December 19th, 1910. So when you understand that Baltimore was the pioneer in creating urban apartheid, that helps explain so many things that we see in Baltimore today. The good news though, is that if we created it, we can undo it. And so I think that's the news that I want people to understand is that none of this is artificial. It's not random. It didn't drop from the sky and oops, we were racially segregated. No, it was done intentionally so it can be undone intentionally. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. Links to amazing resources can be found in the episode's show notes. Special thanks to Sarah Gilberg for allowing me to use snippets of her song Fireflies from her debut album, Other People's Secrets, which by the way, is available wherever music is sold. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the show. And now that Tangible Remnants is part of the Gable Media Network, you can listen and subscribe to all network partner content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Until next time, remember that historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling our inclusive history. I saw the first fireflies of summer And right then I thought of you I could see us catching them and setting them free Honey, that's what you do That's what you do to me I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris owners of Level Studio Architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real to this day I, i i don't know if it's with everybody but with me i'm always questioning like us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.